Will you pray with me? They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. Father, our prayer simply this morning as we gather around your word is that you would shine your light into our lives and shine it onto our wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. What do you suppose is the third word that small children learn? The first two are pretty easy, probably mama and dada. And I think the third word that they probably learn is mine. Mine. Now, hold that thought a minute. If you give a young child a candy, she's probably going to clutch it to her chest and say, mine. If you tell a little boy to share his toy, he's going to grasp it even tighter and say, mine. You see, because as children begin to get a sense of self-awareness, they, they realize that the world is made up of a bunch of circles. And there's a circle out there that is occupied by mommy. And there's one by daddy. And those are good circles because they provide for me and take care of my needs. There, there might be some other circles, sister, brother, those you have to be a little more leery of. But the most important circle is the circle that I live in. And that is mine. And the challenge for the young child is that anytime anybody begins to impose upon that circle, then they use the fourth word that they learn, which maybe you thought was the third, and that is the word no. You see, because we have this built-in sense of ownership over our lives, and if anybody is going to impinge upon that authority, our response is to reject them, because this is mine. I have a saying up in my office. It says, the kingdom of self is heavily defended territory. And that's the question we want to talk about this morning. The question of whose are you? Because on Good Friday and on Easter that we have just celebrated, Jesus invaded the little kingdoms of self and laid claim to the throne of our lives. And the theme of our chapter, Exodus 13, is really the Old Testament version of what we celebrated so beautifully last week, the theme of Easter. And the theme is mentioned four times in the single chapter. I don't know if you noticed that. It's worded different ways, but the theme is simply this. It is by my strong hand that I have brought out my people from the house of slavery. And what we learn in Exodus 13 is that God redeems his people from slavery by a strong hand. And there are three implications of this truth in this chapter that we want to look at this morning. But the question simply is, in that light, whose are you? Are you yours or are you his? First, his claim to ownership, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beasts, is mine. Now, here's the text that we're going to look at this morning and kind of filter everything through from Psalm 114. When Israel came out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of foreign tongue, Judah became God's sanctuary and Israel his dominion. 
He said, the firstborn among all of your animals and yourselves belongs to me because I brought you out of Egypt so that you might be my dominion. Now, what does he mean by that? Does he mean simply that as the creator, he owns everything? And that is true. For instance, Psalm 24, one says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. But that's not what he's talking about here in Exodus 13, too, because he says just the firstborn are mine. Does he mean that all of the Israelites are mine because I chose them as a people? Well, again, that is true, but it's not specifically what he's talking about in 13, too, because he says the firstborn are mine. And so the first question we need to ask is, in what sense are the firstborn his that all of creation and all of his people are not? And in order to answer that question, we need to find ourselves again in this story in the book of Exodus. If you recall, we're doing a series in Exodus, and we took a break last month in March, and Mark led us through a a beautiful series on the resurrected gospel. The fact that we need to know the gospel and experience it every day. We need to love it so that it breathes out of our lives, and then we need to share it. We need to be asking God to open doors and to open our mouths and to open hearts for the gospel. But way back in September, we started the series in Exodus, and the first section were the first six chapters, The God Who Hears. Then in the winter, Mark started us on the second section, The God Who Delivers, chapters 7 to 12. And today we're starting the third major section of the book of Exodus, The God Who Provides, chapters 13 to 19. You see, God has heard the cry of his people. He has visited them. He has provided a deliverer in Moses, and he has begun to work to release them from their bondage. But for nine plagues, Pharaoh continued to harden his heart and refused to let the people go. What was it that finally changed his mind? It was the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. The firstborn of every animal in Egypt, the firstborn of every human, including the firstborn in Pharaoh's own household. And when he saw that death blow, Pharaoh decided he had finally had enough. And he says says to Moses, get the people out of this land and get them out now. And so chapter 12 ends with the people hurrying out of the land of Egypt. Really the climax of the first 12 chapters of the book. And our minds now want to race ahead, as I'm sure did the minds of the people of Israel. Where are we going to go? How are we going to get there? How are we going to be provided for in the desert? What if the Egyptians follow us and attack us? So many questions. This is a, it's a page-turning story, and we want to find out what happens next. But God says first, wait a minute, because I have some lessons to teach you. And isn't God like that? He will slow us down in our tracks when he wants to teach us some important lessons. So the very first place that they camp after having left Egypt, in the, the area of Succoth, God stops them. And he teaches them from this chapter, Exodus 13, the lessons that he wants them to learn. And the first we've already seen is his claim to ownership. The firstborn of everything among you is mine. Now, why did all the firstborn belong to him? Well, specifically because they were to have died when the avenging angels swept through the land of Egypt. And God, in his mercy, had provided a way of escape. He said, what you need to do is sacrifice a lamb and take its blood and put it on the doorposts of your house. And everyone who does that, the firstborn in that house, will be saved. And here's what God is saying. Because I saved the firstborn, I own the firstborn. You follow? 
Because they owe their life and breath to me, they are mine. All whom the blood has spared belongs to God. That's what he's saying. Well, what did that mean specifically for the Jews? He goes on in verses 11 to 16 and describes what that looks like. He says, you're supposed to sacrifice the firstborn to me. And that was not metaphorical. That was take it out back, cut its throat, let it bleed to death and bring it to my altar as a sacrifice. That's what I want of every firstborn among you. And that raises two questions. The first is, well, what about unclean animals that couldn't be sacrificed to God? And he answers that in verse 13. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. You see, even the unclean animals belong to me. And if you want it back, you have to redeem it. And something else has to die in its place. And if you don't do that, then you have to kill it. You don't get to use it because it's mine, God said. But the second more important question would probably be arising in the minds of the little children. Particularly the firstborn sons. Because as they began to understand what was going on year after year and as the, the flocks grew, you might imagine a little Jewish boy remembering that Stub, the donkey, had given birth to this cutest little donkey you had ever seen. And you loved that donkey. And, and one day your dad took a lamb out back and, and did what God said to it. And you said, why did that lamb have to die? And your dad said, well, because this donkey belonged to God. It was the firstborn. And so I was redeeming it. I was buying it back. And, and then you remember even your tears on the day that that cute little lamb of your favorite sheep that you had begun to pet and to even name and that you loved so dearly. One day dad took that little lamb out back as well and did what God told him to do. And it hurt and you cried. He said, God, Dad, why did you have to do that? And he said, Son, that lamb was God's. And I was just giving it back to him. Now the rest that come from that, you are ours. But, but that one was his. And you can just imagine as the boy begins to get a little older, he starts to put two and two together. And what question does he ask one day? What about me? I'm the firstborn of my mother. And I'm not dead. Dad, what happened? Well, then he will take you to what it says in verse 13b. He says, every firstborn of man among your sons, you shall redeem. He didn't want them to kill them. He asked them to redeem them. Now, it's not described in this text, but over in Numbers 18, it says what the price to redeem a firstborn son was. And the price was five shekels of silver, about 50 grams of silver, maybe as much as a day laborer would earn in several months. And what the father had to do is give that money to God and buy back his firstborn son. So when the boy asked the father, why wasn't I killed? The answer was simple. Son, I bought you back from God. Well, this was a practice, verse 16, that was going to be a reminder. Just as if it was a mark on their hand or frontlet between their eyes. A reminder that by a strong hand, God brought his people out of Egypt. And I hope you're asking the question, what about us today? Are there any firstborn sons here this morning? Got a few. I'm I'm one. Starting to get nervous. Well, the, the good news is that this command is nowhere repeated in the New Testament. So we don't practice it. But there's a deeper application to this. 
Because God in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23, calls us who believe the church of the firstborn. And what he means by that, I think, is simply this. Is that you and I who have been saved by the blood also belong to God just like the firstborn did. If we have put our faith in Jesus and if we have been spared the wrath that would come upon us, we are now in debt to him because he saved our lives. And if you're a believer today in Jesus, his claim of ownership is on your life because with his blood, he bought you back. Now, this is not an automatic thing that happens. You must personally take that lamb and put its blood on the doorpost of your house. What does that mean? You need to personally believe in Jesus for your salvation. And when you do that, then he buys you back and you become his. You're delivered from your sin and its punishment. And you're given to God as his new piece of ownership. And so Paul says to everybody in this category, these very important words, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Many of you have heard this story, but it fits so well here. And let me just repeat it for you. There was a boy who loved the sea and boats. And one day his dad taught him how to make a boat. And he worked hard and created this lovely little red, white, and blue boat. And boats don't do much good sitting on the shelf. And so one day he took it out to the lake, a beautiful spring day like today. And he watched it proudly sailing on the water. And then suddenly a gust of wind came and took that boat away and carried it out of sight. And the boy was heartbroken. A few weeks later, he and his dad were walking down the main street of the town and he looked in a shop window and there to his amazement was his boat. He said, Dad, that's my boat there. He says, are you sure, son? Yes, you see that little mark on the front? I know it's mine. The dad said, yeah, but there's a price on that boat now. So they went into the store and the boy said, I've come to get my boat. The shopkeeper said, what do you mean your boat? That's my boat. I bought it from a fisherman. When the father explained the story... The shopkeeper said, I'll tell you what I'll do, son. If you pay me what I paid the fisherman, I will let you have your boat back again. So the boy went out and worked hard and earned enough money. And when he had it, he came back to the store and he bought his boat back. And as he left the store with the boat carefully cradled in his arms, his father heard him say, little boat, you are twice mine. You're mine because I made you. And you're mine because I bought you. And that's what the redemption of the firstborn tells us. We are God's because he made us and we are God's because he bought us back from slavery. Now, this is not just an abstract truth, but it's something deeply personal. Do you remember, for instance, the Gerasen demoniac in the book of Mark, chapter five? The Bible says that this man was filled with demons and he lived naked among the tombs and The text says that he cried out day and night and he bruised himself with stones. What an amazing picture of the slavery of sin. They had tried to bind him with chains, but he would break them off and he was a a menace in the community. And one day Jesus came and Jesus cast the demons out of him and he sat there clothed and in his right mind. And do you know what that garrison demoniac said? He said, Jesus, I want to follow you wherever you go. He said, you have done so much for me. Now I'm yours. Are you feeling it yet this morning? Do you understand what it means to have been bought back and freed from sin by the payment of a great price? 
How about the sinful woman who went to the house of Simon the Pharisee? And there at Jesus' feet, she wept and she dried his feet with her hair and she poured oil on his feet. And and Simon looked at that with disgust. And Jesus turned to Simon and said, you've only been forgiven little. That's why you only love me little. This woman has been forgiven much. He said, all the bad things she has done because of her faith, I have forgiven her. And now look how deeply she loves me. You see, his claim of ownership is on those whom he has delivered. And it is a very personal and real thing. We saw it last week. Do you remember the video testimonies? God has delivered people in our midst. He has delivered you from things like pornography, from the effects of adultery, from living for oneself and one's self-image. And how do you suppose all those people that gave their testimonies last week feel about Jesus? They are his now. Because he redeemed them and freed them and bought them back. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 116, O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant, because you have freed me from my chains. And my friends, this morning, if you have been freed from your chains because of the redemptive act of God through Christ, you belong to him. Well, secondly... Not only does he have a claim of ownership, but he has a call to purity. Verses 3 to 10. There are three memorial ceremonies described in these chapters. One, we've just seen the redemption of the firstborn. The second is the Passover that's described in chapter 12. When they were to kill a lamb each year to remind them of how they were saved when the avenging angel went through Egypt. And the third is here in verses 3 to 10. The feast of unleavened bread that followed immediately after the Passover celebration. The prescription is fairly simple. Look at verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. And then drop down to verse 7. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. And he went even further. Not only were they not to eat unleavened bread, but he said there's not even supposed to be any leaven anywhere in your territory. And in chapter 12, he said nowhere in your house. There's not to be a trace of leaven anywhere in your whole country during these seven days, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And God was drop dead serious about this because he said in chapter 12, verse 19, if anyone eats anything with leaven in it during that seven days, they are to be cut off from Israel. Well, this created a bit of a conundrum for Jews, because you see, they could eat leaven the other 12 months, the other 51 weeks of the year. And so they had it lying around. They, it was in their stores and they used it. So what were they supposed to do to prepare for the Feast of Unleavened Bread? They were to search their houses and every place in their country and gather the yeast together and burn it. And that's what they did and they still do that today. In fact, it's quite a tradition in Jewish homes. The week before the Passover, there is a ceremony where the family, either the, the head of the family or the children, make almost a game of searching every nook and cranny and every corner of every cupboard and countertop in the house. And they sweep it all together. They even take a candle and a feather duster and go around to get all the little bits of yeast. And in case there isn't any yeast, they... They, they will even throw some Cheerios around into the corners of the houses so that the kids have something to gather up. And, and they gather all of these things now with yeast in it. And when they've cleaned the house, then they burn the yeast and they're purified and ready for the week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What a great teaching tool. Can you imagine the questions that the kids would have? 
And, and this was part of the point of it. But in contrast to the redemption of the firstborn, where it said, when the boy asks the father, why are you doing this? The father should say, here he says in verse 8, you shall tell your son on that day. So the parents are supposed to take initiative to teach their children why they're doing this particular celebration. And just as a side note, do you understand that from the scripture, the primary teaching place for the truths of God is not the church, it's the home. That's why God has put parents, fathers and mothers to teach their children the meanings of the religious ceremony so that they can enter in and participate and understand what's going on. And our programs here, we have wonderful children's ministries and student ministries. But their goal is not to take the place of the family. Their goal is to help you as parents teach your children the ways of God. Notice this was a very personal thing. Verse 8, you shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me. The father must have a personal experience of salvation to be able to share it with his children. Well, what is this? Feast of Unleavened Bread mean for us today? Do we have a memorial ceremony of our being delivered out of slavery by the great hand of God? You bet we do. We do it once a month here at College Park Church. It's brief, but it's very significant. It's the time when we remember and almost reenact what Jesus did for us so that we enter in again to that redemptive experience and the freshness of what it's like to have been freed from our sins by His blood. But there's another question here that we need to answer, and that is this. What's the matter with leaven? Why was it singled out to be cleaned out of the house? Well, we need to understand, first of all, that leaven was not inherently unclean for Jews. As we mentioned, they did eat it the other 51 weeks of the year. They liked bread with yeast in it. In fact, it's not even always used in a negative sense metaphorically. Because while Jesus did say, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees when he was talking about something negative, he also said that the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and kneaded into the dough until it went through the whole batch. So you see, leaven itself isn't either intrinsically good or evil. It just stands for something that, that influences the whole batch of dough. Leaven is a reminder of the haste in which they left Egypt. We see in chapter 12, verse 34, that, that they had no time to let their bread rise. They just grabbed their kneading bowls and headed out into the desert. And so it would remind them of their slavery and their suffering and of God's dramatic deliverance. But there is another element in here as well, and I think it's alluded to in verse 9. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. And Jewish scholars have taken this to mean that the leaven in this context represents that which is evil inside of us. It represents what we talked about at the beginning of the message, that sense of self, of control, of wanting to have things our way. And what God wanted His people to do was once a year take a week and think about all the places where that yeast had worked its way into their lives. And then to confess that and to receive forgiveness and to live a pure and holy life. Paul said to purge out the old leaven, 1 Corinthians 5. And it is essential that not a speck of it be found in our house. Now, why was that so important? 
Well, God said in Exodus 19 that you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see, God is saying there that the reason he brought the Israelites out of Egypt was so that they would become for him a holy nation. God wanted a place where he could live among his people. And God likes a clean house. God is something of a germaphobe. Or we might say he's a cynophobe. He does not live where sin does. And so he wants his people to periodically purify and cleanse their lives. Now, our problem is that we are a lot more like stubby than we are like Jesus. Now, some of you may remember that we have a dog named Stubby. And he's a very smart dog. He's so smart that we even have to spell some words around him. Uh, And one of those words is F-A-R-M. In fact, the other day, my sister was over and I, I used the word afar in just a funny kind of a sentence. And Stubby thought I had said farm. And he immediately started to get excited and was bouncing around between our two doors because whenever we go out of town, we take Stubby up to the farm in Noblesville where my parents live. And he loves to go there because there he can be a real dog, not a city dog. There's, there's four acres for him to run around in and, and there's a pond back the lane. And so last summer we dropped him off and when we went to pick him up, he had just come back from the pond down the lane. And you remember last summer, things had kind of dried up. And how do you suppose the water in that pond was? That you couldn't actually get to the water for about five feet out because of all the scum around it. Well, Stubby had come out of that pond and he had a nice necklace and coat of scum on him. And we looked at him and we said, no way you're getting in my car. And you know what he said? Well, nothing because he can't talk. But what, what, what he was saying is, I'm a dog. And this is fantastic. This is true living out here. You see, the the problem is we have different sensibilities than he. What smelled good to him smelled bad to us. And we did not want that in our car or in our house. And so what did we do to Stubby before we took him home? Yeah, we got the hose out and sprayed him down and washed all that scum off. And that's exactly what God is talking about here. Stuff happens. Mark has an expression that is really significant. He says, our affections leak And let me just add a third one, crud accumulates. And if you doubt that, just take a look at your stovetop, maybe inside your microwave. You don't mean to be a dirty person, but, but what happens? Just over time, crud accumulates. And we're not very sensitized to it because we're not holy like God. And so what God is saying is periodically, I want you to stop. And slow the merry-go-round down. And let my spirit search your heart and find in what corners of your life is this yeast still hiding and influencing the whole batch. He says, I want you to confess that. And I want you to get forgiveness for it. And I want you to live a pure and holy life. Because I want to live among you and be home at home in your hearts. This is why Paul said in the text that Scott read to us from 2 Corinthians 6. We are the temple of the living God. And the implications of that are in chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves. That's the feast of unleavened bread. From everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. How is it with you this day? Is some spring cleaning in order? 
You know, this is exactly what we talked about at Live 12 back in August. The mortification of sin, putting to death sin so that we might be holy people in his sight. Not, not to earn his favor, he's already shown that to us. But so that we can be a place where he can live and dwell among us. So God has a claim of ownership on our lives. He has a call to purity. And finally, he has a commitment to lead. Verses 17 to 22. We're just going to look quickly at these points. There, You'll get more in-depth about them if you'd like to look on the website and read the full manuscript. But four quick points about how he leads us. First, he leads wisely. Verses 17 and 18. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines. All of that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. This is a remarkable verse. Because we need to understand that the people were not only going out of something, they were going to somewhere. They had a destination. God had promised all the way back to Abraham that he was going to give to his descendants the land of Canaan. And now they were on their way. So I'm sure they were saying, let's get there already. And God says, wait a minute, you're not ready for that step yet. Does that sound like your life? You want to get there now? And God says, hold your horses. There's something more important that you need to learn here. We know that the shortest distance between two points is what? It's a straight line. So this is the way that they could have gone. But here's the way that God took them. And they ended up as we'll see in weeks ahead, wandering all around the wilderness. And why was that? Well, it was because they weren't ready yet. And God knows his people well. You see, along that shortcut were the Philistines. And they were some bad dudes. They were going to fight. And the Israelites, what had they been doing? Well, for the last 400 years, they had just been tending sheep and making bricks. They didn't know how to fight. They weren't ready to fight. And God said, if they face the Philistines, they are going to prefer serving the Egyptians back in Egypt to fighting the Philistines. And I don't want them to go back to slavery. I've just delivered them from that. And I have so much more in mind for them in the promised land, so much I want to give them. But they're not ready yet. So God took a detour in their lives. It turned out to be a lengthy one. But this is how God leads us wisely, because he understands us. He knows his people well, and he leads us by the right way. Secondly, he leads faithfully, verse 19. He leads personally, verse 21a, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar. It is God himself who leads his people. And Paul actually alludes to this in 1 Corinthians 10, and he says that Christ was the one that was accompanying them. Christ, I believe, was in this pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. It was not just a Google map for them to get from point A to point B. It was God himself that was with them in the form of this pillar of cloud and fire. And that's the the fourth way that God leads. He leads very clearly. You see, in the wilderness, you need a guide. They had not been that way before, and they didn't know where to go. The pillar of cloud and fire was probably one pillar that was illuminated by fire at night, and it was a visible symbol of the presence of God. This cloud had a variety of functions, as we will see in the weeks ahead. It, it protected them from the sun in the day, and it, it guided their steps at night. It was the cloud from which a dangerous fire came out 
to burn the complainers, Numbers 11, to kill the irreverent, Leviticus 10, to destroy the rebellious. You see, God's presence isn't always safe if you want to run things your own way. But if you want communion with him, this cloud was also the cloud from which God spoke with Moses face to face as a man does with his friend, the scripture says. But here in our text, the cloud is clearly, verse 21, to lead them along their way. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. We don't have time to read all these scriptures, but this is where God put his dwelling place among them. And then he said, here's how I'm going to lead you. Whenever the cloud would lift, you leave. And whenever it stays, you stay. You see, the the presence of God among us is like our stop and go light. It tells us when we need to stop and when we need to go. But he's more than that. He's also our GPS system. He tells us where to go and when to go. And I know what you're saying right now. Saying, I would sure like me a cloud. Because a cloud I can see and I know how to follow it. Well, think about this for a minute. What did Jesus' disciples have instead of a cloud? They had Jesus. And they could follow him and they could talk to him and and they knew exactly where to go. What's better, a cloud or Jesus? Jesus in the flesh is better. But Jesus was going away. And do you remember what Jesus said to the disciples? He said, it's actually good for you that I'm going away. And, And how's that? Well, he went on to say, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. For he lives with you and will be in you. My friends, if you think a cloud is great, you should try walking with Jesus in the flesh. And if you think walking with Jesus in the flesh is great, you should try being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And that is what He has given us as New Testament saints. He has given us His Holy Spirit inside of us to be with us and in us, to guide us clearly through all of the decisions and the the wilderness of life that we wander through. And you say, how do we hear the Holy Spirit? I, I still want a cloud. Well, that's because you want to walk by sight, not by faith. And and it's impossible to please God without faith. He wants you to learn to listen to the voice of the shepherd. That's what Jesus said. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. My friends, God leads us very clearly through the presence of his spirit among us. That is his commitment to us. He is going to take us through the wilderness and show us exactly where to go and provide all that we need if we will but believe him and listen to his voice and follow him. When Israel came out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of foreign tongue, Judah became God's sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sanctuary is where God lives. The dominion is where he rules. And this is why he has called out a people for himself. And the question today is, whose are you? Are you still yours or are you his? If you are a believer today, if you have received the gift of salvation, his claim of ownership is on your life. You are bought with the blood of Jesus and no longer belong to yourself. Here's how our text fits together. I think his claim to ownership tells us that we have a role and that is to purify ourselves, to remember all that he has done in delivering us from sin and to confess our sin and to receive his forgiveness. 
But God in his grace and kindness has a commitment to us as well. And his commitment is to be with us every step of the way. And to lead us through all of the decisions and the difficulties of life. So let's be diligent about purifying ourselves. And let's be listening to the voice of God in our midst. He is our good shepherd. He is ours. And we are his. In his strong, redeeming, saving, and guiding hands forever. Will you pray with me? Would you just take a moment and reflect on God's claim of ownership in your life? If you do not yet know Jesus, you are still your own and you're free to do that. You can go your own way, but he offers you something much greater today. If you will receive his gift of salvation and let the blood protect you from the death that your sins deserve, he will deliver you and then he will say, now you are mine. And what a better place to be than to belong to the gracious and most powerful God of the universe. If you are his today, would you let his spirit search your heart? See if there is any wicked way in you. Would you confess that to him? Get rid of every scrap of yeast in your life. And then would you... Say, God, I want to follow you. Thank you for leading me by your Holy Spirit. And I will lead wherever you take me. Because I trust you. And I love you. Lord Jesus, we do love you. We are yours because you have bought us. We thank you for your commitment to care for us. All the days of our lives. And then we get to live in the house of the Lord forever. We long for that day. But until that day, Father... We want to be people among whom you are at home and over you whom you are in charge. Take our lives to that end for your glory and our joy. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There will be some people here at the front. If you would like to have someone pray for you, if you would like to receive Christ, come and talk to one of us. And now go and grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forevermore. Amen.